ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد Today insha'Allah ta'ala, we begin with Kitab al-Tawheed. Last time we spoke generally about Tawheed, about this particular book, and how this book, it goes through chapter by chapter, different aspects of Tawheed, clarifying the meaning of Tawheed, and also chapter by chapter going through different aspects of shirk, so that a person can be familiar with what those types of shirk are in order to avoid them. That is the reason why a person learns about shirk and the categories of shirk, in order to be able to avoid those actions, to avoid actions that would be deemed as shirk. And that's why in the narration of Hudayfa ibn al-Yaman, when he said, كَانَ النَّاسُ يَسْأَلُونَ النَّبِيَّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ عَنِ الْخَيْرِ وَكُنْتُ أَسْأَلُهُ عَنِ الشَّرْءِ مَخَافَةً أَنْ أَقَعَ فِيهِ he said, people used to ask the Prophet ﷺ about the good things, but I used to ask him about the evil, fearing that I may fall into it. And that's why they say in Arabic, كَيْفَ يَتَّقِي مَنْ لَا يَعْرِفْ مَا يَتَّقِي How can somebody protect himself from something if you do not know what you are supposed to be protecting yourself from. So learning Tawheed, but also learning Shirk, and the types of Shirk, then that is for the purpose of then being able to keep yourself safe from those different actions of Shirk. So here then we begin with Kitab al-Tawheed and in many of the copies it begins with the Basmalah. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. And you will notice many of the books of the scholars they begin in this way. They begin with the Basmalah. They begin by the author saying Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. And that is as as Shaykh Al Fawzan, Hafidahullah Ta'ala mentions, it is emulating, copying the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He would begin his affairs with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim when he would write letters. He would write at the top, Bismillah, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. The Prophet ﷺ would write that 
at the beginning of his correspondences, his letters that he would write to the people. And كَانَ يَبْدَأُ عَلَيْهِ الصَّلَاةُ وَالسَّلَامُ أَحَدِيثَهُ مَعَ أَصْحَابِهِ بِبِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when he would uh, be speaking and conversing with his companions, he would begin with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. It is also mentioned regarding Sulaiman alayhi salam that when he wrote to Bilqis, the Queen of Saba, that he began with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. And that is mentioned, قَالَتْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْمَلَأُ إِنِّي أُلْقِيَ إِلَيَّ كِتَابٌ كَرِيمٌ إِنَّهُ مِنْ سُلَيْمَانَ وَإِنَّهُ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمٌ That she mentioned this letter has come to me from Sulaiman, and it has upon it, بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمٌ So this is something that is common. And it is from the way of the Prophet ﷺ to begin your affairs with the basmalah, to begin your affairs with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. So the Shaykh says, as Shaykh Al Fawzan, Fal Bada'atu bi Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, Fil Umur il Muhimma, Fil Mu'allafat wal Khutab. والمحاضرات والأكل والشرب وجميع الأمور التي هي من الأمور المهمة تبدأ ببسم الله الرحمن الرحيم تبركا بهذه الكلمة العظيمة وافتتاحا للأمور بها That all affairs of importance all of your affairs of importance like a book that a scholar is writing a book, he would begin it with the basmala. A person is going to address everybody, he's going to talk to them, deliver some speech, then begin it with the basmala. You're going to give a lecture, begin it with the basmala. Before eating and drinking, you begin with the basmala. So in all affairs, of importance, the Muslim begins with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. And what is the meaning of it then? What is the meaning of Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim? The meaning of it is that I seek aid and assistance in the name of Allah, the Rahman, the Rahim. I seek aid in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Bismillah. It means, astainu billah. I seek aid and assistance from Allah in this affair that you are about to begin. That's why you say, Bismillah at the beginning. Bismillah. I am going to start writing this book now. Bismillah, I'm going to start delivering this lecture now. You say the basmalah at the beginning. 
meaning by it that you are asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for aid and assistance in what you are about to do, in the lecture you are about to give, in the book that you are about to write, in whatever that affair may be, astainu bi bismillahirrahmanirrahim. And of course, Allah is one of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As many of the scholars have said, it is al-ismul a'zam, the greatest of the names of Allah that all of the other names return back to. And ar-Rahman, ar-Rahim, two more of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala indicating the mercy of Allah. The mercy of Allah, which encompasses all of the creation, even the kuffar, they have an element of the mercy of Allah, with the food and the drink and the air and the clothes and the homes they have too. And the believers have a greater degree and a more specific mercy from Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, particularly on the day of judgment, that by the mercy of Allah, the believers will enter paradise. So those are from the names of Allah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So after beginning with that, the author then says, or it mentions here, Kitabut Tawheed. The name of this book, Kitabut Tawheed. The book of Tawheed. In Arabic, as a side point, kitab masdaru kataba. The verb kataba yaktubu, and then kitab is a masdar of that. And linguistically, filugah ma'anahu al jamr. Kitab, this word kitab in Arabic, it comes from the root meaning of compiling something getting something together, compiling something together, getting something together, uniting something, putting it together. That is the meaning of kitab or where the root meaning of that comes from. سُمِّيَ الْكِتَابُ كِتَابًا لِأَنَّهُ جَمَعَ الْكَلِمَاتِ وَالنُّصُوصِ فَفِيهِ مَعْنَ الْجَمْعَ so the reason why a book in Arabic is known as a kitab, which means to unite and to gather and to compile something, is because that's exactly what you do in a book. You gather together multiple chapters. You gather together multiple topics. You gather together multiple parts of the explanation and you put them together, compiled together united into a book. So in Arabic they call it a kitab, a compilation and a gathering of the different materials together making this book, making this kitab. In Arabic they have other uses of the word as well, for example, مِنْهُ الْكُتَيْبَةِ مِنَ الْجَيْشِ لِأَنَّهَا تَجْمَعُ أَفْرَادًا مِنَ الْجُنُودِ for example, when you have a battalion of the army, there is an army, and then one section of that army, a small portion of the army, is sent to go this way or that way. That small part of the army 
that is also known as Al-Kutaybah from the word Al-Kitab because that is a collection that is a collection of the soldiers coming together into that battalion. So that is the meaning of the word Kitab, a collection and a compilation and a gathering of something. At-Tawheed, Kitab tawheed So this is now the compilation and the gathering of the materials regarding At-Tawheed in this book. So then what is At-Tawheed? For the purposes of having a complete set of notes, there are many here who have not attended maybe previously. So for the purposes of a complete set of notes, we'll go through the definitions of Tawheed to begin with. Tawheed, it comes from the Arabic word Wahada. Masdaru Wahada yuwahidu Tawheedan. From the word in Arabic, wahada, yuwahidu, and you get the word tawheed. And that word in Arabic means to single out something and to make it one and alone. Tawheed, from the word wahada, yuwahidu, to make something one and single. That's the meaning of the word tawheed. So Islamically speaking, when we talk about Tawheed, we're talking about making Allah one and single with all of your worship and obedience. فَمَعْنَاهُ إِفْرَادُ اللَّهِ بِالْعِبَادَةِ The singling out of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with your worship. فَمَنْ أَفْرَدَ اللَّهِ بِالْعِبَادَةِ فَقَدْ وَحَّدَةِ So whomsoever singles out Allah with worship, then he has done the tawheed. He has done the tawheed if he singles out Allah. The question then is, how do you single out something? How exactly do you single out something? And the process that is mentioned, and remember this carefully because you're going to see it again and again and again in the chapters throughout the book. The method of how Tawheed is brought about, how do you single out something? We're going to learn that now and it's going to come up throughout the book. The method of Tawheed of singling out something is of course through the two processes of affirmation and negation. So make a note for those who have not made a note of this previously. Affirmation and negation. The negation and nafi, the affirmation al-ifbat. By having affirmation and negation together, that is how you make tawheed or the singling out of something. Al-Shaykh Al-Uthaymeen, rahimahullah ta'ala, gave one of the easiest and clearest examples to understand how affirmation and negation works. Later on, we're going to see many ayat of the Qur'an and a hadith where that affirmation and negation is there. You'll see it blatantly as we come along. But for now, Shaykh Al-Athaymeen gave a very easy example. 
to understand what affirmation and negation is and how those two make tawheed, how they make the singling out of something. The example many of you have heard before, I believe it is in Al-Wasatiyah, maybe Kitab al-Tawheed, where he said, imagine now in the room over there, there are, for example, four brothers. In the room over there, the door is locked, there are four brothers back there. Muhammad Ali Khalid Uthman. From those four brothers now who are there, I tell you, from the four of them, there are four of them there, Muhammad Ali Uthman Khalid, whatever their names are, and Muhammad is standing up. I am giving you what about Muhammad? An affirmation. I am affirming that Muhammad is standing up. I have affirmed, given you the ifbat, the affirmation that he is doing the act of standing up. So now if I ask you, how many people are in the room? Your answer is four. I told you there were four. I ask you, how many of them are standing up? You can say one, because I told you Muhammad is standing up. But are you sure? What if somebody comes along and says, there's two standing up? Would they be right? Possibly. Somebody says maybe three are standing up. Could they be right? Possibly. Somebody says all four of them are actually standing up. Could they be right? Possibly. Why? I told you Muhammad was the one standing up. I gave you the affirmation from the four of them. Muhammad is standing up. Ali, Uthman, Khalid. I didn't say they were standing up. So how can you possibly say maybe two, maybe three, maybe all four are actually standing up? Because by giving you the affirmation that Muhammad is standing up, I have not made linguistically Tawheed. I have not singled out Muhammad with the act of standing up. Because at any point did I tell you, and as for uh, Ali Khalid Uthman, those three are not standing up. Did I at any point give you a negation about the other three? No. I just gave you an affirmation about one of them. I didn't say a word about the other three. I didn't give you any negation about the other three. So maybe all three of the other three are also standing up. You wouldn't be able to say I'm lying. I didn't say the other three are sitting down. I just said there's four people in the room and I gave you an affirmation that one of them is standing up. Affirmed that for you. But I didn't negate that the other three are standing up. Maybe they are standing up too. So you see, if I give you the affirmation without giving you any negation, can you single out Muhammad with the act of standing up? You cannot. What about the other way? I say there's four people in the room, Muhammad, Ali, Khalid, Uthman. And I tell you that Muhammad, Ali, and Khalid, they are not standing up. Which leaves how many people standing up then? One? Possibly one? 
So I say now there are four people in the room, same four, Muhammad, Ali, Uthman, Khalid. And I tell you, Ali, Khalid, Uthman are not standing up. I give you about them a negation. That's a negation, they're not standing up. Negation about the three of them. So therefore, how many people are stood up? One? Which one is standing up? Exactly. You can't say Muhammad is standing up. There's one standing up. Did I say that? So don't lie upon me. I didn't say Muhammad is standing up. So this time I gave you a negation. So you know for definite three of them aren't standing up. But did I give you an affirmation about the fourth one? No. Maybe he is standing up. Maybe he's sitting down. I haven't given you any negation or affirmation about the fourth one. So again, you cannot definitely say how many are stood up or not. But if I say to you, there are four people in the room, Muhammad is stood up and Khalid and Uthman and Ali are not standing up. Now if I ask you how many are stood up, you can say definitely. One, because I have given you an affirmation about Muhammad and I have given you a negation about the other three. I've negated that the other three are standing up. So you know they're not standing up. I've affirmed that Muhammad is standing up. So you know he is standing up. Therefore, from the four of them, you now know for definite only one is standing up. I have now made Muhammad one and single and alone in the act of standing up by giving you an affirmation about him and a negation about the others. That's how you make something one and single and unique by having an affirmation and a negation together. By only having an affirmation like we did at the start, it would affirm some information to you, but you wouldn't have that in a single and unique manner because you have no negation about the rest. Or if I gave you the negation about some of them, you'd have some information. Some of them are not standing up. But you wouldn't be able to say for definite Muhammad is alone in the act of standing because I hadn't given you in that scenario an affirmation. So... In order to make something one and single and unique, in order to make Tawheed, you need an affirmation and a negation. And this is evidenced in the easiest way in La ilaha illallah. When you say Ashhadu an La ilaha illallah, La ilaha means there is no deity worthy of worship in truth. That's a negation. There is no deity worthy of worship in truth. A negation. Illallah. Except Allah. That's affirmation. So now by putting the two of them together, you have negated that anyone is deserving of worship in truth, but you have affirmed it only for Allah. So now you have made Tawheed. You are affirming only Allah is deserving of worship and you've negated it from all others besides Him. The two together, affirmation, negation, bring about Tawheed. 
Hence, as we'll see when we go through the book, when the mushrikun, they gave certain affirmations. The mushrikun gave certain affirmations. Like when the mushrikun were asked, who created the heavens and the earth? They affirmed that Allah creates the heavens and the earth. About their love, they affirmed that they love Allah. They affirmed that they love Allah. But did they negate that they love other deities besides Allah too? They didn't. So even though they affirmed their love for Allah, they didn't negate that they also loved these statues and idols, and therefore they were not creating or upon Tawheed. They were not singling out Allah. To single out Allah, you affirm your love for Allah in that love of worship, and you negate it from all other deities besides Allah. But they did not. They would say they love Allah, but at the same time they would take partners alongside Allah and also love them. So affirming their love for Allah wasn't Tawheed because they weren't negating it from others. So Tawheed requires the affirmation and the negation. La ilaha illallah. There is no deity worthy of worship in truth except Allah. Negation affirmation. You now have the Tawheed. If you only do one of those, you say, yes, Allah is deserving of worship. Yes. Has that person done Tawheed with just that statement? Not necessarily. Because you don't know whether he negates the worship of others besides Allah. He's affirming, yes, Allah has the right to be worshipped. Yes. But that statement alone doesn't necessitate Tawheed. Because he may also be affirming worship to others. Until you hear him give you the negation as well. And I negate the worship of all others besides Allah. That's when the Tawheed comes together. So that is what it says here in the title, Kitabut Tawheed. And we know generally speaking, there are three categories of Tawheed. The Tawheed Ar-Rububiyyah, that is the Tawheed of the Lordship of Allah. And you can summarize that into one line by saying it is definition. Ar-Rububiyyah. Are you you confused? (laughs) So Ar-Rububiyyah. It is ifradullahi bi af'alihi. They used to do this in the University of Medina. When we were in Medina University, sometimes you had to memorize a hadith and they want you to memorize where the hadith is. Memorize all the hadith and then memorize it's in Sunan Abi Dawood, it's in Sunan Al-Tirmidhi, Sunan Al-Nasai. Memorize where, which book the hadith is in. So then they test you. So the student sits there and reads all of the hadith. And then at the end he says, and this hadith, it's in Bukhari and Muslim. Reads the next one, this one's in Sunan Abi Dawood. Reads the next one, this one's in Sahih Muslim. Teacher says, what? Sahih Muslim? Student says, oh no, no, wait, wait, Bukhari, Bukhari. Teacher says, I was going to give you the mark, it was Muslim. (laughs) So you have to be certain on those. Where were we? 
Al-Rububiyya. So that is singling out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with his actions. In Arabic, Ifradullahi bi'af'alihi. Singling out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with his actions. Meaning, affirming to Allah his actions and negating those actions from anyone else. For example, the action of creating, affirming that Allah created all of this that exists, negating that anyone else created alongside Allah. Giving life and death, affirming that Allah is the one that gives life and death, negating it from all others. No one else can give life and death. Providing the sustenance and the rain and the provisions, affirming this action to Allah, negating it from all others. Nobody else sends down the rain and the provisions and the food for you. So you affirm those actions uniquely to Allah and negate that anyone else has any part to play, any participation in those actions. Singling out Allah with His actions that are specific to Him. Then Al-Uluhiyya in a nutshell, Tawheedullah or Ifradullah bi-af'alina. Singling out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with our actions. Singling out Allah with our actions now. Our actions are basically all of our worship. Whether it is worship from the heart, worship upon the tongue, worship upon our limbs, all of our worship, we single it out, affirm it to Allah alone, sincerely with ikhlas to Allah alone, and negate our worship being done for any others besides Allah. No showing off, no, uh, not for the dead in their graves, not for anyone else, your worship being singled out to Allah alone. Al-Uluhiyya. And then also Al-Asma'u Wa-Sifat. The names and attributes of Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has beautiful names and attributes. Some people mistakenly think Allah only has 99 names. That is incorrect. We'll get to that in the chapter later on. Allah has more than 99 names even. The beautiful and perfect names of Allah affirmed to Allah in that perfection. And there's nobody in creation who has that perfection in the names and attributes in that way, uh, comparable to Allah. So those are the three categories of Tawheed. That is the basic introduction to Kitab tawheed the explanation of the Basmala, the explanation of the word Kitab, the explanation of the word At-Tawheed. Now if somebody asks you, Explain what Tawheed is in a nutshell. You can tell them Tawheed is to make something single and one. How do you make something single and one? You need affirmation and negation. You can use the example. And one of the easiest examples in the religion of affirmation and negation is in the Shahada. La ilaha illallah. So that is the basics. And then Tawheed has these different categories, Al-Rububiyyah, Al-Uluhiyyah, and Al-Asma'u Wa-Sifat. This book, which category is it going to focus on? Al-Uluhiyyah. 
There are some sections on Arububiyya, Al-Asma'u wa Sifat, but the core of this book, it is about our actions and singling them out to Allah alone. Because when you don't single out your actions to Allah alone, that's when shirk appears. So the focus is going to be upon that. Then, the first evidence that a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab mentions in the book. Anybody want to read, by the way? I forgot. Anybody? Out loud. Full chapter. Everybody follow in your books if you have the Arabic. Here, read. So they can hear too. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم كتاب التوحيد قول الله تعالى وما خلقت الجن والإنس إلا ليعبدون وقوله ولقد بعثنا في كل أمة رسولا أن يعبد الله واجتنب الطاغوت الآية وقوله تعالى قل تعالوا أتلو ما هرب ربكم عليكم ألا تشركوا به شيئا إلى قوله وأن هذا سراطي مستقيما فاتبعوه الآية وقوله وقضى ربك ألا تعبدوا إلا إياه وبالوالدين إحسانا الآية وقوله تعالى واعبدوا الله ولا تشركوا به شيئا وبالوالدين إحسانا الآية قال ابن مسعود رضي الله عنه من أراد أن ينظر إلى وصية محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم التي عليها خاتمه فليقرأ قل تآلوا أتلوا ما حرم ربكم عليكم ألا تشركوا به شيئا إلى قوله وأن هذا سراطي مستقيما فاتبعوه ولا تتبعوا السبلة الآية وأن معاذ بن جبل رضي الله عنه قال كنت رديف النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم على همار فقال يا معاذ أتدري ما حق الله على الإباد وما حق الإباد على الله قلت الله ورسوله أعلم قال فإن حق الله على الإباد أن يعبدوه ولا يشركوا به شيئا وحق الإباد على الله ألا يؤذب من لا يشرك به شيئا فقلت يا رسول الله أفلا أبشر الناس قال لا تبشرهم so the first <clears throat> the first ayah here we have is the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ That I did not create the jinn or the humans except for them to worship me. This ayah, as Sheikh bin Baz, rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned, it highlights to the believer the purpose of his existence, the objective in your existence. When they all say, why are we here? The great question, why are we here? So here is the answer. Allah tells us in the ayah, 
I did not create the jinn or the humans except for them to worship me. We have been created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the purpose of singling him out and worshipping him. That is our objective and our purpose here. So you note in the ayah, Allah mentions, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ insa. I did not create the jinn or the humans. The jinn, as we know, are another creation from the creations of Allah. Another world from the worlds that Allah has created. And we believe in them as another creation that exists, just like the creation of the humans, just like the creation of the angels, there is the creation of the jinn. And in Arabic, the word jinn, min al-ijtinan, wa huwa l-istitar, yaqul, aw yuqal, jannahu al-layl, idha satarahu, ويقال الجنين في البطن لماذا يسمي جنينا لأنه مستتر So in Arabic the word jinn with the jim and the noon it indicates concealment something that is concealed something that is hidden that is the root meaning of the word jinn in Arabic So for example you have al-janin, which is the, the, the fetus, the womb, when the baby is growing inside of the womb of the mother, that is known as the janin. Why? Because in your eyesight it is hidden, that baby is growing within, by looking you don't see anything, it is within the womb, concealed. Hence known as Al-Janin. For example, they also mention some others. Uh, Al-Majan, for example, where it is like a shield. And that is known as that name because it protects you and conceals you. And also the verb when you say Jannah, meaning to conceal. Jannahu layl meaning the night covered and encompassed and concealed. And as for the jinn, then it is obvious. They are known as jinn because they are from our eyes concealed. We do not see them. We do not apparently and openly see the jinn. They are concealed from our eyesight. As Allah mentioned in the Quran, إِنَّهُ يَرَاكُمْ هُوَ وَقَبِيلُهُ مِنْ حَيْثُ لَا تَرَوْنَهُ They... Or he sees you, he and his party, the shayateen, the jinn, they see you from where you do not see them. So we are unable to see the jinn in the general sense, and so they are a concealed creation to us. But we believe in them, and it is obligatory to believe in them. It is a part of iman to believe in the jinn. If a person does not believe in the jinn, then technically that is an act of kufr. Because if you don't believe in the jinn, it means you are denying 
The Qur'an, Allah tells us in the Qur'an about the existence of the jinn. So if you deny the existence of the jinn, because of all the philosophers and modern day thinkers and scientists, and how can it be, and there's no such thing, and this is all fairy stories, that if a person takes such a position, and rejects the existence of the jinn, then it is an extremely dangerous statement. The jinn are to be believed in because that is something Allah has informed us about in the Qur'an itself. If you reject it, then you are rejecting ayat of the Qur'an. And Shaykh Al-Fawzan says, الَّذِينَ أَنْكَرُوا وُجُودَهُمْ عَلَىٰ أَيِّ شَيْءٍ يَعْتَمِدُونَ those who reject the existence of the jinn, then what are they relying upon? What is their basis for rejecting the existence of the jinn? Their intellects, their own intellects and their modern developments and science and all these things. They say, no, there's no such thing. Spirits, spirits, they don't exist. This is just stories and fairy tales and made up things, ghosts. There's no such thing as these affairs, they tell you, all based upon their intellects and their, uh, as they believe, modern and uh, developed uh, sciences and understandings. And so they reject the existence of the jinn. But the reality is just because you cannot see them and they are concealed from you, then you cannot reject their existence even intellectually. Because even intellectually, we all know we have a soul, but do you see your soul? Do you see your soul and do you have a perception of your soul? You do not. But we know that we have souls. So it is from the belief, the iman of a believer, to believe in the jinn. So Allah says, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ I did not create the jinn or the humans except for them to worship me. And we know that Allah created the jinn from the smokeless fire as it is mentioned. And the angels were created from the light and the humans were created from the clay. That's a hadith in Sahih Muslim. So then after mentioning the jinn, Allah mentions al-ins. And maybe... The humans are mentioned after the jinn because the jinn were created first. What is one of the evidences that jinn were created before the humans from the Quran? Surah Al-Baqarah, وَإِذْ قَالَ رَبُّكَ لِلْمَلَائِكَةِ So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala informed the angels that he was going to create mankind and the humans, the angels, they said, are they going to create corruption and spill blood? Why did the angels say that and have this thought? Because they had seen and experienced that from the jinn who already existed. The scholars have mentioned the angels had already seen this corruption occur from amongst the jinn that already existed. So when they were informed of the mankind, they said, would they be upon corruption and spilling blood, etc.? So the jinn were already in existence prior 
to mankind. Another evidence you could potentially use is Iblis himself, because as the majority of the scholars say, Iblis is from the the jinn, from the shayateen of the jinn, and so he was obviously prior to the creation of Adam alayhi salam. So that is the jinn. Then we have Al-Ins. وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ Ins, since we've been going through the Arabic meanings of the words, what does the word ins, insan, uns, what, what does this mean in Arabic? Anyone? Love. Anyone else? Huh? Forgetfulness. One of the meanings of it, where the word insan comes from, is that uns, which means the need for sociability. The need to have some degree of connection, to have some degree of affection and connection. That's where the meaning or the root word of insan comes from. Why? Because that is the way mankind is created. Apart from the rare cases, people do not live their lives in isolation. They live with others, with relationships with connections, with friends. So the word insan, one of the root meanings of it is to, be, uh, to have that connection and uh, affection and relationships with each other, the opposite of isolation and loneliness. So that is one of the meanings of insan. And they say that is perhaps one of the reasons why insan is known as insan, because it's in their nature to want and desire connection and relationships and uh, affection between each other, not to be isolated and alone. So, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has informed us of the wisdom behind the creation of jinn and mankind. And that wisdom is, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا Except for them to worship me. So we have been created for the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As Allah mentioned in the Quran, Does mankind think that they will be left aimlessly? Does mankind think that they will be left aimlessly with no objective and no target and no purpose. Certainly Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not create mankind without any purpose or objective or any type of target. Rather Allah created them for this great wisdom which is the worship of the Creator. فَمَا دَامَ أَنَّ اللَّهَ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى خَلَقَ الثَّقَلَيْنِ لِعِبَادَتِهِ فَهَذَا يَدُلُّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ الْعِبَادَةِ هِيَ الْأَصْلِ وَأَنَّ التَّوْحِيدِ هُوَ الْأَصْلِ وَالْأَسَاسِ So now that we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created الثَّقَلَيْنِ الثَّقَلَيْنِ means the, 
jinn and the humans, but why are they known as al-thaqalain? Al-thaqalain in Arabic meaning like the ones who have been burdened, thaqil, heavy, burden. Why are the jinn and the humans known as the, the ones with the burden? Because the burden of the Sharia and implementation of it is upon them. The burden of the Sharia and implementation of it is upon them. That responsibility is upon the jinn, it is upon the humans that they have to implement the Sharia. So therefore, they are known as Athaqalain, that they are the ones with that burden upon them. They're not. Like the rock or the stone, even though we know they do the tasbih. But they are not like the animals who have been given sharia to implement. No. Humans and jinn have been given the sharia and the responsibility to implement it. So they have that weight, whereas animals do not in that sense. So, الثقلين, the jinn and the humans. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created them for His worship, and this therefore indicates that the basis, the basis of our existence, the very bottom foundation of our existence is worship. And that is of course upon Tawheed. That is the absolute foundation for the existence of mankind, of the jinn. If a person understands that simple point there, before we've even got into any of the evidences, you understand straight away that the most important thing in your lives is the actualization, the practice of tawheed, of the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything else comes and goes. Everything else comes and goes. The worldly affairs, they come and they go. But this is something which as you'll see in the evidences that follow, is the same unified message from the very first messenger that was sent to the very last messenger that was sent. To go and teach the people to heed and to worship Allah alone. So that is... Al-Asl wal-Asas That is the principle, the foundation Then after Allah mentioned وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ And it is mentioned in some of the athar of the salaf They said the meaning of إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ Is إِلَّا لِيُوَحِّدُونَ كَمَا قَالَ بَعْضُ salaf that the meaning of I did not create man or jinn except for them to worship me is except for them to be upon the tawheed in their worship of me. Some of the salaf they mentioned that and they said whenever you see in the Quran the command to worship Allah then it equals the command to be upon tawheed. Because there is no such thing as worship without tawheed. The very basis of your worship is upon the correct aqidah, upon the tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So then after Allah mentioned that, He said, مَا أُرِيدُ مِنْهُمْ مِنْ رِزْقٍ وَمَا أُرِيدُ أَنْ يُطْعِمُونَ That I do not want from them 
any sustenance and neither do I want them to feed me. Inna allaha huwa razzaqu dhul Allah, He is the provider. He is the, the mighty, the majestic, the provider. That section of the ayat comes directly after Allah tells us our purpose in creation. That it's to worship Him. Allah tells us immediately after that, I don't need any sustenance from them. I don't need or require anything from them. Proving to you and showing you that our worship of Allah is not because Allah created us and, uh, for the purpose of worshiping Him, not because He, not because Allah is in need of our worship. Allah didn't create us with this purpose of all of us worshiping Him, the jinn and the humans, because Allah needs us to worship Him. That is not the reason. We are in need of worshipping Allah for our own benefit. It is not that Allah needs our worship. And that's why the scholars, they mention, if everybody disbelieved, it would not impact upon Allah. In the narration where it mentions that about the, the drop of liquid from the ocean, if everybody was upon the afjari qalbin rajul, qalbi rajulin wahidin minhum, if everybody was upon the most evil heart of one of you, would that impact to affect the kingdom of Allah in any way? No. So Allah highlights, He created us all to worship Him, but not because He needs us to worship Him. Not because He requires our worship. Allah does not need anything from us, does not require anything from us. In fact, the narration is here. It is mentioned, "Ya ibadi, law anna awwalakum wa akhirakum wa insakum wa jinnakum kanu ala atqa qalbi rajulin wahidin minkum, ma zada thalika fi mulki shay. Walau anna awwalakum wa akhirakum wa insakum wa jinnakum kanu ala afjari qalbi rajulin wahidin minkum, ma naqasa thalika mimma o min mulki shay'a. In the hadith it mentions, in the hadith Qudsi, that Allah said, O oh my servants, if all of you from the beginning to the end, the first to the last, from the humans and the jinn, every single one of you, if you were upon the most pious heart from amongst you, the person with the most pious heart, if all of you were upon that level of piety, it wouldn't increase my kingdom in any way. And if all of you, from the very first of you to the last of you, from the jinn and the ins, from the jinn and the humans, were upon the most evil heart of one of you, you were upon the most evil way, all of you, مَا نَقَصَ ذَلِكَ مِنْ مُلْكِ شَيْئًا It would not decrease anything from my kingdom whatsoever. مَا نَقَصَ ذَلِكَ مِنْ مُلْكِ It would not decrease anything from my kingdom. In the Qur'an Allah mentions, إِن تَكْفُرُوا فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ غَنِيٌّ عَنْكُمْ وَلَا يَرْضَى لِعِبَادِهِ الْكُفَرِ If you disbelieve, then Allah is غَنِيٌّ عَنْكُمْ And that is indicating that Allah is completely self-sufficient, not in any need of you. Allah is the rich 
not requiring anything. If all of you disbelieved, then Allah has no need or has no deficiency or any weakness that arises from that. Allah is ghani, the powerful, the mighty, the majestic, and not affected if all of the people they disbelieved. So that is important to remember our purpose in existence, the wisdom behind our creation is in that first ayah. وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ And also important to remember that it's not because Allah needed us to worship Him. Rather, Allah created us with this objective and purpose as a test. As a test upon us, who from amongst you will believe and be upon obedience and who from amongst you will disbelieve and be upon disobedience. الَّذِي خَلَقَ الْمَوْتَ وَالْحَيَاةَ لِيَبْلُوَكُمْ أَيُّكُمْ أَحْسَنُ Allah, the one who created death and life to test you. Which of you will be the best in action? So that is the opening ayah. That is the opening ayah. We'll finish upon that point for today. We'll start on the rest of the chapter. The whole of the rest of the chapter will finish it next lesson. The intention is to try and do a chapter per week. Sometimes it may not be possible. Some are slightly longer. And sometimes some are very short. You can do two chapters per week. But we'll try roughly to do a chapter per week. Uh, So next week we'll finish off the full opening chapter. That was basically the introduction and the first ayah. So we'll conclude upon that for today and we'll resume next week. Any questions then up to there? Do we all have jinn with us? What do you mean? Why? How? Where we get bad thoughts from, uh, like, there's one hadith that says, uh, shaitan runs in our beards like sin. There's a hadith about that, about the shaitan, inna shaitana yajri min ibn adam majra dam. That the shaitan flows through the veins of a person, through the, the body of a person, like the blood flows through. So no doubt... The shayateen, they whisper to a person, and the shayateen constantly attempt to whisper to a person, constantly attempting to take him away from the right, uh, away from the right to the wrong. And as the scholars have mentioned, as Sheikh Abdurrahman Sa'di said, the shayateen don't just want to take you away from the straight path. So what do they want to do then? The shayateen don't want to just take you away from the straight path. As-sirat al-mustaqim. They don't want to just take you away from it. So what do they want to do? Huh? Shirk, khalas. If you go away from as-sirat al-mustaqim, you've committed shirk. But they don't want just that. As-Sheikh Abdurrahman al-Sa'idi, I think in the tafsir, he said the shayateen, their objective is not just to take you away from the straight path, it's to take you away and keep pulling you away so that you eventually get to a place where even if you look back, you can no longer see as-siratul mustaqim. Because if you're pulled away slightly by the whisperings of the shaitan, you turn back and you can still see the as-siratul mustaqim, the truth. 
the revelation, what you need to do. Repent, go back, seek forgiveness. But if they keep pulling you away to such a distance, that suddenly you look back and the truth and the haqq can no longer be seen by you. So there are constantly shayateen whispering, no doubt. Mention that the majority of the scholars hold the opinion that shaitan is jinn. What about the minority then? So what do the scholars say also? The opinions regarding Iblis, majority of the scholars they say Iblis was from the jinn. But there are some opinions, there are some opinions, and they are not strong opinions, but they exist. So as a student, sometimes you learn the opinions just to know what other opinions existed and what scholars may be said. So what was one of the other opinions then? That shaitan or iblis was from the angels. It is an opinion mentioned by some of them that he was from the angels. Why do they say that? What's an evidence they might use? In the Quran, They say, look, Allah said... To the angels prostrate. If Iblis wasn't one of the angels, then the command wouldn't have applied to him in the first place, and he's done no wrong. So he must have been one of the angels, and so he didn't fulfill that command, and that's where he did the wrong. So they use general evidences like that, but the reality is there are many other evidences highlighting the opposite. Why does Allah mention to see who is the best in actions and not the most in actions? In the ayah, That Allah created death and life to test you. Which of you are the best in your actions? And Allah didn't say which of you can do the most actions. Because when it comes to worship, it is not about the most worship. It's not about who does the most worship. It's about the person who does the best worship. And what's the difference? Well, not necessarily a difference because somebody can do the most worship but also be doing the best worship. But what is the best worship? What is the meaning of the best worship? The worship that is built upon the two pillars of al-ikhlas, sincerity to Allah, al-mutaba'ah, following the sunnah. An action is only righteous, where it says, وَعَمِلُ الصَّالِحَاتِ Many times in the Qur'an, the salihat, the righteous actions, are the ones done sincerely for the sake of Allah, al-ikhlas, and also done upon following the sunnah, al-mutaba'ah. If a person has one of the two, then the action will not be righteous. If a person does it sincerely for the sake of Allah, but the action he's done is not from the Qur'an and the Sunnah, then his action is a bid'ah, even if he's done it sincerely for the sake of Allah. As some of the Salaf mentioned, كَمْ مِنْ مُرِيدٍ لِلْخَيْرِ لَمْ يُصِبْهُ How many people out there, they say, but I only intended good, but they never actually get from their actions any good, because they may be claiming sincerity, but if the action isn't from the sunnah, it's not going to be accepted. Man amrina Whomsoever does an action in our legislation that is not from it, it will be rejected. Fahuwa rad. Ay mardudun ala sahibihi la yuqbal. 
it will not be accepted. So that's why imagine the example, we give simple examples. If somebody comes for Isha prayer and he says, tomorrow I'm not working. I got a day off tomorrow. So today for Isha, I don't have to go to bed early. Today for Isha, when the Imam prays, I'm going to pray with him. When he gives salam, I'm not going to give salam. I'm going to get up and do another four raka'at. Make my Isha eight tonight. No work tomorrow, I'm free. I want to increase my worship for the sake of Allah. I want to increase my worship for the sake of Allah. What's your problem with that? Sincerely for the sake of Allah, I'm free tomorrow. I have time, let me worship. Sincerely. We say, okay, even if you're claiming sincerity, your prayer like that won't be accepted. Because it doesn't have within it following of the sunnah. And same the other way. You follow the sunnah, but you're not doing it sincerely. You do the action which is an action from the sunnah, but it's not done sincerely for the sake of Allah. Then it will not be accepted. Like the three who are thrown into the hellfire, one of them, Rajulun qatala fi sabilillah, fought in the path of Allah, jihad. He did. And he was killed. On the day of judgment, it will be said to him, what did you do? He said, qataltu fika hatta stushit. I fought in your path until I was killed. And he was martyred as it appeared. But then it will be said, kathabt, you have lied. Even though he done the action and he had been killed, fighting in the path of Allah as it appeared. Because it will be said to him, إِنَّمَا قَاتَلْتَ لِيُقَالَ You only used to fight so that the people would say, how brave you are, how courageous you are, how bold you are. You wanted the praise of the people. You wanted the praise of the people. That's why you did this action. The action, is it from the sunnah? Absolutely. But sincerity, was it there? No, so he's thrown into the hellfire. The scholars, they say, look at that. A person does not just an action of the sunnah from the best of the actions of the sunnah. Like in the hadith, Ayyul amali khair, uhabbu ilallah. And it mentions, Al-jihadu fi sabilillah. And yet a person does that action insincerely. It is no longer a righteous action. Hence, the best actions, not the most. If a person is doing lots and lots, but they're not upon the sunnah, then it's going to waste. So it is about the actions upon sincerity, and upon following the sunnah, not just blindly doing all sorts of things, and they are not uh, evidenced. Why if a person goes to the basketball, and then shaitan starts playing with his head, saying, oh, you're doing it for the people, and what's the, what do you think the intention is? What if a person goes to the battlefield, but then he starts getting whisperings? The example the scholars give, like in uh, uh, Ibn Rajab al-Hanbali, in his explanation, Jamil al-Ulum al-Hikam, he mentions right at the beginning, the example of the prayer, because that is a more common example. Somebody comes in and they start praying sincerely, and then a group of people walk in at the door. So now all of a sudden, and, and then those people sit just near him right there. So they're in his vision. So then he starts thinking, and he starts making his ruku' more beautiful. And he starts making his prostration more beautiful. So even though he started sincerely, maybe some whisperings entered upon him within the worship. So then what's the ruling on that? Prolong. Huh? To prolong. Prolong what? What's the ruling on his prayer? 
He started sincerely, but when the people walked in, he got some whisperings of showing off. And he started maybe getting these thoughts that they're looking at me and I should maybe improve my prayer, make it longer. started getting some whisperings. So what's the ruling on his prayer? But what's the ruling on his prayer? Valid or invalid or what? It all depends on how he reacts. If you're there now, people walk in and this idea occurs to you. The whispering enters. People are there, maybe, you know, make my ruku' long, make my sujood long. The idea comes because the people walk in. That instant or that whisper enters. But immediately as the whisper enters, you remember these narrations. You remember the reality of sincerity and ikhlas and you block out that thought straight away as soon as it came. In that case, your prayer is completely valid, no impact. The whispering came to you about showing off. But instantly you remembered the rulings of the religion and ikhlas, and you blocked it out and you carried on as normal, no impact upon your worship. But what if now the whispering comes, and all of a sudden it does impact upon you? And you do make your ruku, maybe you're in your last rak'ah. You're in your last rak'ah, and you do start to maybe get impacted slightly in that last rak'ah. Now what's the ruling? Hmm? The rak'ah is invalid? The rest of the prayer is okay? So he's praying dhuhr for example, one rak'ah is invalid, so he's saying what? He's got to get up and pray one more? So there's a difference. Some scholars, they say in that situation, all of his prayers invalid. Why? Because they say he was doing an act of worship, which was the prayer. The prayer is made up of different parts, like Dhuhr is made up of four parts, four raka'at. But ultimately, those four raka'at are not independent acts of worship. It's not like you can pray one raka'at, give salam, and then come back later, pray another one, come back later, pray another one, come back later, pray another one. Okay, I've done for my dhuhr is done. They're not independent acts of worship. They are together as a unit to make an act of worship. So some scholars say if that insincerity falls into your fourth rak'ah, for example, it invalidates the whole prayer. Because you can't separate away one rak'ah from that unit of prayer. It's a unit of prayer. Dhuhr prayer can't be established with just three so if one of them has gone off, then your whole prayer is gone. That's an opinion. Others like, they say, each raka'ah has a level of independent basis to it. Each raka'ah is independent to a degree. So if your last one that occurs, it's just a case of the last one being invalid, and you'd have to repeat that. So that is, it depends on how a person behaves in the middle of his worship. If a person gets whisperings but he's able to block them and get rid of them, then he continues upon that worship. And the other end of the extreme, the shaitan perhaps uses this as a means to stop a person worshipping. That he whispers to the person, no, you can't, you can't read the Qur'an now because some people have walked into the mosque. And if you read the Qur'an now, you know you're going to be doing it just to show off. So the shaitan perhaps whispers to a person to make him stop doing worship, Saying to him, if you do it, you know you're going to be doing it to show off only. And that isn't the case. You block that out. You know you're doing it for the sake of Allah. It's not for the sake of anyone else. And you continue upon that sincerity. But the best one to read is Ibn Rajab al-Hanbali at the beginning. A lot of good explanation on the niyyah. Hmm.
Absolutely. May Allah bless you with wealth. If you find books, if you buy a book, and then later on, maybe a few years later, a better version of that book is published. Because in Arabic, uh, I mean, this book, not so much, it's only a couple of hundred years old, but older books, six, seven, eight, nine hundred years old, when the, when the publishing companies, they publish those books, obviously they use the old manuscripts. I don't see any pictures on this one. No pictures here, but the old manuscripts, with the, well, similar to this. So you have that in handwritten form. The old books of Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim, they'll just be written like this in their handwriting, or the handwriting of their students. So then they've got to read through all of those handwritten pages and type them out. Obviously, some publishing companies aren't very good, and they'll make low, you know, a lot of mistakes. They'll misread words, and they'll make lots of mistakes when they're copying it out from the manuscripts. So they are poor copies. So sometimes a good copy comes out, but then years later, maybe some other students, they come along, maybe they find another manuscript, which is better than the original one. And it's clearer handwriting. So then they make their copy, which is better than the original copy. If you're able, then you should buy those better copies. If there is enough justification in that new copy. Maybe the new copy, all they've done is three chapters out of the book. They say to you, there's three chapters, chapter 17, 26, and 37. Those three chapters, we found extra pieces of the manuscript, and we've done those in this copy. So then you don't necessarily need to buy that. You can just get those three chapters, a photocopy or those notes, copy them out from somebody who's got that book. Two pages, three pages, copy it out. But if they've done a full new book properly with extra annotations, notes, checking, then yes, if you have the wealth, you should buy the better copy afterwards. Some of the scholars, they have five or six copies of the same book. Five or six copies of the same book. Like taqrib, taqrib or tahzeeb in the sciences of hadith, about the ilm al-rijal. There's no good copy. I don't know these days if anything new came out. Some of the scholars used to have six copies of the same book. Six copies of the exact same book. Six or seven copies of it. Because each one's got a few mistakes in it. It's like Fath al-Bari. Fath al-Bari, to this day, there isn't a proper good copy of it. All of them have mistakes. The Dar al-Salam one, the Dar al-Tayyiba one. All of them, they have small printing errors and mistakes. So you have to be careful with the copies. And if a really good one comes out and the scholars advise it, you should get it and sell your old one or get rid of it or some other means. Anything else? Last question. I don't remember the exact discussions of what they mentioned, but you can find it in the book of Sheikh Muhammad uh, Al-Aqil, Muhammad Abdul Wahab Al-Aqil. In his book, he has a book about the angels, full big book about the angels, three, four hundred pages. In one section of it, the full debate is there, the discussion is there about why some scholars say he's from the angels, why some scholars say uh, jinn. Uh, and there's lots of discussions. It's a full book, several hundred pages, just about the angels. When we did that in the University of Medina, 
They took a semester doing it. Three months just on the angels. So that book uh, of uh, Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab al-Aqil, from the scholars now he's alive, now he's in Medina. That book will give you all the details there if you need to look into it further. We'll conclude upon that for today then, and we'll resume next week after Isha at the normal time, insha'Allah ta'ala. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sallam.